Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Hello and welcome to TV Show and Tell, a podcast about the good, the bad and the ugly sides of the TV industry. I'm David Bodicum, I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, known internationally as the Format Doctor. And in this week's episode, our special guest is the British media executive Dawn Airy, who set up the UK's Channel 5. We'll also be discussing why television programmes take so long to film, and what it's like for a show to get cancelled. But first, it's time for the news. So what have you got in your clippings folder, Justin? So the first thing that I wanted to talk about was a show called Kidiverse Roblox Rumble. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. I know about this area. Okay, yes. I thought this was your area. So this is going to debut on the Cartoon with a capital K channel around the world in the first quarter of this year. It's hosted by Rashad Jennings, who's a former NFL star, and it features real-life challenges based on Roblox games. So they're going to play it in real life. They're going to play real games, real big physical games, kids aged 8 to 12, essentially in order to win prizes. So I know whether it's the first time that a big kind of metaverse game has gone onto television, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Everything is, is virtual. and They're not actually building genuine... No, quite the opposite. Everything is real. Oh, they are? Okay. Yeah. So they're actually they're actually building and making stuff for real with with real blocks and so on. Um, apparently, mm. there will therefore obviously be virtual versions of it, you know, on the on the website as it were. But uh, literally this morning on my bank account, it's come up with Microsoft payment eight pounds forty nine, Microsoft payment four pounds ninety nine, Microsoft payment four pounds ninety nine. Because my son has obviously worked out on the Xbox how to buy himself Robux to spend in the Roblox universe. So I'm going to have to have a word with him when he gets (laughs) back from school. I feel sorry for him already. I find this area fascinating, actually. There's this thing called an obby, uh, which is they have slang for obstacle course. So like the... You have to jump your character from place to place. But like basically every little world in in Roblox is effectively a different game show. And they all have their sort of own individual rules and and economies. And it, it is quite fascinating how they've managed to either create new formats or adapt to existing formats and, and sort of reprogram it in the Roblox world. Oh. So skipping into a completely different world, Apple TV Plus have a musical competition series launching in March called My Kind of Country. Mm-hmm. So this is a country music competition. Um, there's a few things about it that are a bit different. The first is that it's global, so it's not basically entirely American-centered, though it does end up in Nashville, obviously. Um, so the show features scouts, who are themselves country western stars, who basically travel the globe looking for talented artists. They then handpick some of them, and then they bring them to Nashville for the finals. That's interesting, because normally 
nominally it's the sort of we start at the queue of people outside the the studio mm. going way we're here to be picked out of these thousands of people even though secretly we know the producers are probably lined up about 80 percent of the acts already yeah, to be to be featured yeah i think exactly i think it, it is a different approach and also i think it reflects reflects apple's global reach i think you know way back when i think i've talked before about when you're talking about these different platforms you need when you're thinking of ideas for them you need to be honest with yourself about what this platform actually does you know so if you're making stuff for you know amazon amazon sell products and if you're making stuff for netflix netflix is a big video store and so on and the thing about apple tv is you know they represent a huge amount of music talents and music talent catalog and so on so it makes a huge amount of sense. I'm surprised actually it hasn't happened before that they haven't, they've stepped into the musical competition area. But the big advantage for a show like this globally is that Apple TV can deliver, you know, one hell of a prize because exposure from Apple music on their platform to the winners of this competition can obviously, you know, potentially deliver millions and millions of fans. And buyers, and, and like YouTube, force your album to be downloaded on every device in the in the <laughs> known world if if required. Yeah, exactly. It's still somewhat parochial, isn't it? Though I mean, like, although country and western is very big, I mean, like a friend of mine used to be a Madonna impersonator, and and she went to go and have a second career, effectively, as a country and western star in in America, and she mm. and she, she had a like two or three albums, and it was moderately well received and. It's it's still somewhat of a it's 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 a niche, but it's a big niche. I, I can see why it could be popular, but I'm not sure outside of America who's going to watch this. Well, that's a good point, but I suspect that they've they've done their research. It's going to feature Reese Witherspoon um, as oh, wow. as as well as uh, Casey Musgraves. So they're both executive producers of it, as they are of a number of Apple TV shows. Um, but this time they're going to be on screen as well. So. So what do you get if you if you play a country and western record backwards? I don't know, Justin. What do you get if you would play a country and western backwards? Well, you get your dog back, you get your truck back, and you get your girl back. <laughs> <laughs> That's my only country and western joke. <laughs> okay, so uh, another interesting show. So one of our guests, Axel, a few episodes ago when we were reviewing MIPCOM, mentioned a show which involves a group of autistic journalists interviewing well-known people this launched in the end of last year um, on france 2 um, called les rencontres du papotin so le papotin is a long-running french journal french newspaper which is entirely staffed by people on the autistic spectrum and they have for a long time interviewed well-known people for the for the paper but now they've moved on to TV and they're interviewing people so that the guests sits at their offices surrounded by a large group of journalists, uh, particularly young people, who ask them questions live. And the difference is, of course, that or well, the argument is that because they're on the autistic spectrum, they, they're, they are less filtered than other journalists and the guests are more willing to take an unfiltered question. So last week they interviewed Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, which from what I've seen was a was a terrific interview and uh, got some great questions. 
So I think the first question was, do you make a lot of money? <laughs> <laughs> so to which you replied, to tell the truth, I, I made a lot more money before being president. Yeah. Do you have many friends? Was a good question. Uh, <laughs> which you replied, being president is not the best job for making friends. <laughs> there was, how do you, how to, how do you prevent evil from winning? Wow. Yeah, that's a question. There was a long silence. And then he said, every day you have to convince yourself and convince others that good is a little better. There was a lovely question about uh, his wife, Brigitte where the uh, actual journalist didn't dare read it out. <laughs> so gave it to somebody to read out. The question was, he is the president. He must set an example and not marry his teacher. Because uh, Brigitte, his wife, famously was his teacher at school. Um, oh, I never knew that. I knew there had an a, um, age gap between them, but I never knew that. Yes, well, this is what he replied. When you're in love, you don't choose. It falls on you. And it wasn't really my teacher, it was my theatre teacher. It doesn't count the same. <laughs> it's not like it was my maths teacher. <laughs> mm, okay, no, that's no, a very no. French way of explaining exactly it. Exactly, very French way of explaining it. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's delightful. And, uh, you know, if you if you have a means or opportunity to, to watch it, it's it's terrific. I think it's also a good example of a show where if a bunch of people in a TV office just made this up, it could have been awful and cringeworthy and inappropriate and all sorts of things. But when these ideas bubble up from a group of people who themselves have had, you know, decades of experience, you know, that's when you kind of get the authenticity and security, I suppose, security for the guests because they, they, understand the milieu that they're going into and security on the production team because they're just highly experienced in in this area. Dawn Airy is one of the most recognisable media executives in British television. Between the late 1980s and the 2000s, she held major commissioning and management roles at ITV, Channel 4 and B Sky B. But perhaps she's best known for setting up Channel 5 in 1997, Britain's first new TV station for 15 years. Let's hear from her now. So Dawn, you've described your career as a list of assignments I've been given, which is a great phrase, but what did you mean by it? Well, I haven't had a, the usual linear career, uh, but sometimes I think that's quite hard to do in television. Mm. Um, so I've been sort of, I consider myself very fortunate, which is I've been given uh, extraordinary opportunities. And, uh, and when I have completed, as it were, that assignment, folks have offered me something else that, <laughs> that has proved to be irresistible. And if something's irresistible, you mm. don't resist. But truthfully, when I started my career at Central Television um, in the late 80s, I thought I would happily be a producer there. And then maybe if I was good enough, I might become director of programmes. And if, and if I was even better, because this was the linear career then in 80s, I might become managing director of the whole thing. But I was very happy to stay at Central. But I had a boss who uh, who saw things in me that maybe I didn't quite see myself and pushed me into doing other things. And then I found I had a knack for uh, starting things that were new and things that were distressed or needed changing, I was very good at. And once you get addicted to that and are good at it, uh, you're highly sought after. So um, I've worked with wonderful people in the main. There's been a couple of ourselves along the way, but um, didn't stay too long there. And uh, like I said, it's been a series of, of wonderful assignments. I mean, if you look at today's working population, the sort of Gen Zs and, you know, the the centennials, everything says they're going to have between eight and nine jobs during their career. 
that's what I think I was. I think I was ahead of my years. I was a, a millennial <laughs> or Gen Z stroke centennial, even though I'm neither, but by a long way early in my career. So Excellent. that's what I mean by a series of assignments. Let's go back to your time at Central. <laughs> you joined as a, as a trainee. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after a couple of years, I think, your boss uh, said to you, you should be a planner. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm interested in this because it seems like, you know, just as you were saying about what attracts you about going into a into a new job, this idea of planning rather than producing seems really important. Uh-huh. And also it led you into these planning meetings with the different ITV companies. So perhaps mm-hmm. you can tell us something about that. Well, I didn't want to be a planner, but the planner then was basically working hand in glove with the director of programmes. And the director of programmes said, I want to make these shows. And then the planner would say, yes, that's all very well, but the schedule doesn't need them. And this was in the days, sort of in the 80s and 90s, when ITV was very much a federal system. And it was the big five companies, uh, big five being London Weekends, uh, Thames, Yorkshire, Granada and Central, would carve up the budget between them and then decide what they wanted to commission. Not always with an eye on the schedule, but threw it to the planners to sort out the mess. And um, it was it was interesting that Andy had identified that that was something I was good at. And let's face it, if you're a producer, you're very good at sorting things out and logistics and planning. So maybe going into the formal business of planning a television station was a sort of natural continuum. But the the thing that I was interested in and and still am interested in is how do you marry creativity with 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 making money? Mm. Um, and it struck me that as a planner working with the director of programs, no matter how creative producers and directors are and, and, and originators of idea, they need somebody to say yes. And the person who says yes is, is the person then who had access to a distribution. So that was the director of programs in conjunction with the planner. So it was a really interesting place to be. You were like a sort of conductor of an orchestra, mm. but everyone <laughs> to play violin. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so it was, it was a great place to be and a great place to learn. In those days, I guess, training meant being put into different roles right across the station. So my training at Central was very broad and very grounded and actually put me in good stead. So I spent time with ad sales. I spent time with sort of legal and business affairs, as well as obviously time uh, with with the programming team. So I truly understood all aspects of a commercial creative business. So you gained all this amazing experience and then you became a planner. I was thrown in to be a planner. Uh, I was in my 20s. All the other planners were, and it sounds if I'm being gay, so I'm not, they were a lot older. They were all men. And they were quite affronted that this young whippersnapper from Central had been appointed as controller of planning. And most of those guys, and they were all guys, had come up through presentation. And sort of what did she know? Well, I knew quite a lot because I did my homework. Um, so I used to have to go to pl- um, planning meetings on a fortnightly basis in London and Central was based in Birmingham. And you would literally get together with those other five planners and you'd horse trade. You'd horse trade the programming you had and you all wanted the best slots. So what were the best slots? Well, everybody wanted the inheritance of the Coronation Street or the bill to launch new shows. But also you had to really know who your programme was aimed at. You had to understand what was going on in the opposition. You also had to have a view on what your um, peers from other channels were pitching uh, for those slots so that you could slag them off, basically, and make sure that you've got the best slot. I was always terrified going back to to Central and not having got the right positioning for all of our shows because, obviously, you want them to succeed. And if they succeed, you get more commissions. But you clearly had a knack for it. I proved to be effective quite quickly. How How did that happen? Quite simply... 
I did my homework and there's no substitute. That's what I tell my kids all the time. There's no substitute for hard work. Very few people get to be the top of uh, any profession without working really hard. And, and I absolutely knew my brief inside out, upside down, back to front. And I knew the performance of the schedule, rival schedules and what our colleagues were pitching. So I, I was always on very, very firm ground. Hmm. Um, and then also I could stand my ground as well. I mean, I'd been to a boys public school, which didn't really care for. I think my parents were quite perverse sending me there, but there we are. I did. <laughs> I was one of a few girls that went through. And to be honest, I think if you cope with that experience, <laughs> it was like life on Mars. They were Cro-Magnon uh, men. Um, I told you that my pronoun, and I won't say it on your podcast, but it's a very offensive word, uh, begins with C and ends with T, and it's four letters. You can work out what it was. Right. Um, but, but it was then deemed as a term of loose affection, though quite hard to see, but it was true. But that that's what went on. Wow. Um, give as good as I got. I could also drink quite effectively, which was also quite important because a lot of work got done at very, very boozy lunches. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was a, it was a different era and it worked. And the ITV schedule was unbelievably creative then. And there were great shows on the network. It wasn't all bad, but for a, a relatively cultured, relatively young female, it was a bit of a baptism of fire. But Plenty of folks said, well, it stood you instead for the rest of your career. Well, it sounds like it did. It sounds like it, it actually laid a huge amount of groundwork for what you did uh, subsequently. <laughs> so after that, I don't want to go all through your career in, in narrative form. Well, it won't be a podcast. It'll be an opus day. <laughs> exactly. So quick question on ITV. So you went to ITV yeah. as, uh, the, as controller of children's and daytime. You've said yes. that you like to go into places and sort things out, sort out the mess, work out what's yeah. not working. What was the mess? Well, it wasn't. What the, it was the mess, and I liked things that were new. And this was new. So this right. was the network when it had just been set up. There'd never been a network centre before. Um, and this was in response, I think it was the, to the 1990, I think it was 1990, it might be, it was, was it 1990, No, it was 1990 Broadcasting Act that said RTV is a cartel. It decides what the budget is for programming and divvies it up between itself. That's not acceptable. There has to be an independent commissioning and scheduling body to the network. And it has to be open for indies to pitch for, for some of those slots. Mm. So it was the first time there'd been centralised commissioning. There wasn't the horse trading. I mean, there was still horse trading with the network centre, but there, it was centralised. So before, if I wanted to commission a show for kids programming uh, for the kids schedule you'd have to go and it would be negotiated through the kids uh, subgroup and then, then it would go to the planners this was different I had control of the schedule so the schedule was mine the budget was mine and I had the the ITV companies not just the big five indies um, as well as the other then I think 13 ITV regional companies could pitch mm. as well. So there you were at ITV Network Centre 1993 in really a very powerful role. It was a new role insofar as when I turned up, there were literally sackfuls. It was like probably in the post office now uh, of proposals because finally it was seen that ITV was going to be accessible and it wasn't a stitch up between the big five. Mm. Um, so I was one of the commissioning editors and I had to zip through it all and decide what I did and didn't want and commission. And and what I did was, I, and I've always done this, I try to respond to everybody really quickly because you, you know as a commissioner what you want and what you don't want. There are a few things that fall into what I call the grey area. You're not sure and you need to, you need to explore or pilot or whatever. Um, so I try to clear the backlog, which I did. And then it was it was quite easy to be effective 
And again, this is a this is a strategy I've always used as a commissioner, which is the stuff that works. You give longer run sticks. You just run it on longer. And by the way, if somebody produces a massive show for you that works well, you also give them more business. That's just good and proper business. But you also pepper it with trying lots of new things as well. And the more new things that you try, the more you're likely to get hits. And so with the schedule, that's what I did. I just cleared it up. You know, I had the benefit of, I was part of the team that actually commissioned this morning, which was a stonky success straight out of the gate. Tried various daytime quizzes and sort of hit daytime gold with uh, Supermarket Sweep and Dale Winton. Mm -hmm. And what about the kids' schedule? Because you weren't just controller of daytime, you were controller of children's as well. There was a fair amount of snarky comments about she's never commissioned a kid's show in her life. You know, what does she know about kids' programming? But I did remind the commentators and the journalists, well, I was a kid once, not that long ago. Some would say I still am a kid. And I know what makes good telly. And I know what makes good telly for kids. And the, and the BBC had consistently beaten sort of ITV kids forever. So again, came in, tried lots of new things. Some worked, some didn't, but got the schedule working really well. And you know what? We started to beat the BBC. And so I had we had success with the, I say we, we did, as ITV had success with the kids and daytime schedule very quickly. And when you're successful in telly, then somebody else looks at you and thinks, I think I'll have a bit of that person over here. Okay, so, so your next assignment was uh, going from there to Channel 4, which was when you, <laughs> you were under the arts brief, was it? That's right. Yeah, I had, um, well, I had a really great, great brief. So I was controller of arts and entertainment, which meant responsible for everything apart from factual programming and film four was carved out. So uh, of that, I had its, its own head. So comedy, acquisitions, sport, arts, entertainment, daytime, that was all, that was all mine. I had the most wonderful boss, a guy called John Willis, director of programmes. Um, Channel 4 had just started selling its own advertising space before that ITV used to do it. I mean, and a wonderful lady called Andrea Wonford, the late Andrea Wonford, who was really a television great, was going to Granada to be managing director. And, and so they wanted sort of somebody who, an entertainment sensibility, they wanted somebody who was commercial, but also understood of the remit and what Channel 4 was there to do as a platform for different voices, for different producers. And it was an amazing place in the 90s, amazing. Now, if you've ever been in the audience for the recording of a TV show, or even if you work in the industry yourself, you may be wondering, why do TV shows take so long to record? Something that might end up being 30 minutes or 60 minutes on screen may take four or five hours to record so what are the things that can go wrong in a tv studio and justin this was uh prompted by two things one is that colin murray has been given the host job for countdown mm. the very famous words and numbers show that launched channel four and is still just about in commission and it's about half the age of the previous presenters as well. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, he knows that there is a certain audience for the show, and and that's all fine. Mm. There's the, another thing that's quite interesting about Countdown, which is that the fans of the show have a database of every show where they register all the the letters and numbers that were used uh, for the anagram and the, the arithmetic games, and record what the contestants scored and what the optimum moves are for each Gosh. each of these boards. 
But what's also interesting about this database is that they have a category where they list shows where a particular mistake has happened. Mm. So for even a very basic show of Countdown, here is a list of all the different types of things that have happened even just within the game. So first of all, you've got like all of the things to do with like whether a word that a contestant claims is valid or not. So there's been quite a lot of mistakes where things that should have been allowed uh, were not allowed and, and vice versa. So that's a whole category of, yeah, of the problems. Mm. Uh, you know, it's just difficult because it's, you know, different people having to interpret different parts of the dictionary. Yeah, even even though you have got somebody sitting there on set with a dictionary. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes it could be sort of like what happens is like they they, they look at it and they go, oh, that's not allowed. But actually there was a, there was like a fourth definition down uh-huh. that would have allowed it uh-huh. or there might just be like a little symbol that they didn't mi- read i did a series i worked on a series called canada's super spellers which was a spelling competition and one of the things that i actually cut out in the edit was i was brought in at the editing stage to try and sort of save the show because it was very long and quite boring and they had three spelling judges who were there to kind of verify whether the words were real words and whether they were spelt correctly or not. Right. And they were actually on set and the show periodically would would cross to these three people who had giant dictionaries in front of them, but also had giant, you know, English literature brains as well. And Mm. uh, I happily removed them entirely from the show (laughs) on the basis that we had actually done all the verification. So if anyone complained about it, we had footage to say, you know, here is somebody checking, but it, as you say, it, it took a long time. And also they mm. talked amongst themselves, which was even longer. <laughs> so, yep, that's a whole a whole category of pain. Um, sometimes words got through where there wasn't the right letters in the selection. So if you, if you claimed a word that had a K in it, but there wasn't a K on the board oh, right. to use, then that sometimes got through. Mm. Sometimes the, the nine-letter anagram at the end of the show, the countdown conundrum, had two solutions, uh, which is not ideal. So relapsing and spanglia was an example of that happening. Uh, bizarrely, once the host asked the wrong contestant for their answer. So contestant A buzzed in, but they turned to contestant B and saying, oh, what's your answer? Uh, so the other person's name lit up, but they asked the wrong person for the for the answer. <laughs> Quite a good one in the numbers round. The numbers that they have are 25, 50, 75, and 100. And then they have the numbers 1 to 10 twice. And those are on cards that are mixed up. And once uh, they had three nines in a numbers game, and you sort of go, well, hang on a second, each number's only used twice. Hmm. What had happened is a, a six has got turned around into a nine <laughs> as they were shuffling the cards around. And apparently the, the reverse has happened as well, where the nine got turned into a six. I think one of my favorite ones is that I think for a landmark show, it was one of the sort of like, I don't think it was the thousandth show. It might have been the thousandth show. Somebody decided to use the word millennium Mm. as the countdown conundrum. And the contestant buzzed in and got got the answer right. Unfortunately, millennium's got 10 letters and you can only have nine in a countdown conundrum. This was the double N, single N, the problem, was it? Yeah, yeah, they spelt it with a single N, and it actually has two Ns in the correct spelling. Nobody seemed to mention it or notice it at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it just went it just went out as a as a huge mistake. Um, 
So I mean, there's, there's actually more more than that, but that, that, uh, just sort of like a, a sample of the sorts of things can just go wrong within the show. Now, then on top of that, you've now got things like, you know, cameras going out of focus, microphones failing, batteries, hosts fluffing lines. It's just like a such a, a vast range range of of things that can go wrong. That I think, yeah, time. I mean, the thing is that making a television show is an artificial thing to do. I mean. I think when you see it on TV, you assume that it's this sort of flowing, organic thing. And actually, the process of certainly putting it on on air visually is an extremely artificial thing. And so, you know, so many things can go wrong. As you say, they can go wrong within the game, and they can go wrong with... I've had lamps fall down. I've had squirrels in the studio. I've had birds in the studio, flies, butterflies... All sorts of animals. <laughs> I remember I came onto the Crystal Maze in Series 5, and I had therefore been an avid fan of the show. And being in charge of the games, I was distraught at certain times during the first few episodes of recording by the number of games that broke or things that went wrong. And the electrics always went wrong because we were in a cold damp aircraft hangar in December so things that worked in rehearsals and then by the time we got to shoot it everything in it had got damp and it didn't work and I can distinctly remember saying to somebody or somebody saying to me you know are you okay you seem really upset and I was just like all these games have gone wrong today and they just looked at me like a veteran and sort of said yeah I know that they always do <laughs> you know? in <laughs> fact there have been less of them this series so far than usual so you're doing well and I just remember that so much because it was, I remember feeling this enormous sense of relief because I just had no idea. Contestants did stupid things, games broke, cameras broke, people fainted, people threw up, you know, all sorts <laughs> of things happened. You just had no idea about it. Of course, they all just get lost in the edit. One of the weirdest things that happened to me was on Treasure Hunt. And there was a clue about a very particular person. And so you had to look up this person in a biographical dictionary to sort of understand that they were born in a certain place. And that's the place where you were supposed to send the helicopter to is your next part of the journey. So they sort of went, okay, we've got to look up this, this person when we got to the actual game. They the host turned around to his left, looked at the bookshelf, and the biographical dictionary wasn't there. And and I was going, okay, how are they going to look up the answer now when that's not there anymore? And somehow they sort of managed to work it out. But effectively what had happened is we had gone, we'd rehearsed in the morning, we'd gone on lunch break, somebody had come in to the studio and presumably stolen that book, which was worth about £45, and gone off with it, and we hadn't noticed. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that sort of thing happens. Where we were doing uh, Chef in Your Ear in Mexico, I think it was the second series, and we were everything, all the equipment in the kitchen was being sponsored by a particular company, and we were just about to start the dress rehearsal the day before and realised that uh, there wasn't any hobs or anything <laughs> on the set. <laughs> oh. literally the equipment hadn't turned up so 
It's like, okay, so we can't actually cook anything for the dress rehearsal. So it's, it's like microwave noodles and no baked cheesecake. It really today. was. So, you know, it was the, it was possibly one of the worst dress rehearsals. And I've, and I've done some really bad. I have to say for that show, actually, almost every dress rehearsal I've done has been an absolute car crash because it isn't until the dress rehearsal with real contestants and real food that people realize how difficult a show it is to make. And mm. they just assume that it's fairly simple. And then when you actually do it for real, nearly always takes hours and lots of things go wrong. But not having a cooker was pretty high up there for a cooking show. <laughs> <laughs> so let's turn and wrap this up. What is the solution to all this? So is, is it always going to be the case that that television is going to be just a really difficult thing to do? Or are, are there things that we can automate or simplify or make more reliable in the future so that perhaps things can get more efficient? I think there isn't a particular solution to it. I think we, we're constantly, as creators, pushing the boundaries, trying to do something more complicated on behind the scenes that comes over as simple and as clear as possible on camera really where these things go wrong is where the moving parts break down it quite often happens with shows you know several seasons in where if you like the a team has moved on and then the b team has come in and they've moved on and then Mm. people come in particularly for live shows people come into a series on series three series four where the production team is just not as experienced and they they just don't have, or at least not, <laughs> they do very quickly after things go wrong. But you have to learn on, on the job and in the moment that actually there's so many moving parts. And I, I don't want to change that. I would, I'd hate the idea that we got rid of those moving parts. It's being on top of them and probably also just having enough studio time because the nature of budgets means that you get less and less and less and less time to practice. Because, you know, a a full rehearsal costs the same as a full show, if not more, because it takes longer. And and even having a gap between the rehearsal and the first episode is where, you know, you've got, you have some time to fix all the things that go wrong or could go wrong. And, you know, do we give up live television? Because obviously most of these things get fixed in the edit. But the more live TV we have, the more chances there are for things to go wrong on camera. But, you know, nobody wants to give up live TV. No, in fact, there's a lot of interesting things that have happened on live TV, and we'll have to discuss that in a yeah. full topic in the future. Yeah, but viewers, you know, let's let's be clear, <laughs> viewers enjoy things going wrong on TV as well. So uh, it is actually all, potentially all part of the entertainment experience. Now we return to our exclusive interview with Dawn Airy as she talks about her pivotal role in setting up Channel 5. So uh, presumably we're going to talk about the setting up of Channel 5, a rare experience that no one else will ever have given the way that television has now panned out. So you've you've explained a little bit about there you had a completely blank slate, but presumably that the process of setting up the schedule is fairly similar. Now, obviously, you've got to attract the, the viewers who are also the other sort of parties with the government involved. Is X quite involved? Channel 5 was probably the highlight of my broadcasting career because I had a huge amount of flexibility. Although there was a quite a hard frame around me and the hard frame around me and the commissioning team was the 
license, the license against which we were going to be reviewed and judged on an annual basis by the ITC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that license awarded us the channel. And it committed us to a huge amount of detail, both in terms of programming genre and where it would be scheduled. So it was it was a proper PSB heavy license. So there was all of those genres, the politics, the arts, the entertainment, the kids, the news. It was very prescriptive about what time uh, it would be shown and the hours, which is sort of staggering that we that we managed to work within those constraints. But the license application was that it was the passing of an exam. It's a little bit like if you're trained to be a doctor, doesn't make you a great doctor from day one. You might have learned everything, but what makes you a great is, is practicing. And as you practice, things change. And so we knew we had the constraint of the license. But what, what we did have the ability to do was to have a tone of voice. And we knew that we that the license as written made a sort of BBC light and a little bit like ITV. And nobody would expect mm. a new channel to be the same as something else. You'd be looking for something that was different or better. So there you are, Director of Programmes for this new yet to be launched channel, Channel 5, which has to be different or better or both. So how did its, how did its budget compare to its competitors? We had 10% of their programming budget. I mean, we had no money. <laughs> Our programme budget early, in the early days, I think it was something like, like 70 million. It was nothing. Mm. When the, our nearest... The nearest side channel, channel four, I think, had sort of 350 million. I mean, we had no money, but the viewers don't care. You're a new channel. What do you expect from the new? You expect something that is new and different. So between us, and we're actually, what we want to be is we want to be a contemporary channel and we want to be a youthful channel. So we coined the phrase that we wanted to be modern mainstream. And we also wanted to be a very easily navigatable schedule. So back to my sort of planning days, you want, we wanted viewers to know that this is on at this time and it's the same day every week. So we have what we call stripped and stranded schedule. So yeah. simple stuff. Okay? News at six o'clock, then the soap at 6.30, then arts at seven. Then we would have features until nine. Then we would have um, a movie every night of the week at nine o'clock. Then we would go, then, then we'd have sort of our late night talk show. And I'm slightly obsessed with American late night talk shows and absolutely wanted to do one of those. And we did with a show called Jack Doherty, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, and then later we ended up putting up adult programming, which was, again, a very deliberate strategy. And then at the weekend, we wanted to be sort of especially Saturday night, fun, high energy, again, aimed at youth. So we were always very smart in our acquisitions um, uh, at uh, at five. <laughs> so we acquired Xena, Warrior Princess, great, strong woman, um, Lucy Lawless, um, you know, embodied everything <laughs> that we wanted to be as a channel, female out there kicking ass. And that went into um, uh, our big uh, Saturday night entertainment show night fever and so what we did is we interpreted those traditional shows in a in a, in a channel five way don give us an example of how you took something traditional and made it channel five for example news and current affairs um how do we offer news that's different we won't necessarily lead with what everybody else leads with but even if we do we're going to do it in a younger more youthful way we're also going to present it differently it's not going to be a man and woman or a man sitting behind a desk saying news tonight or whatever we're going to have a young, you know, we're going to have a, a female and she's going to be perching on a desk. And that launched sort of the career of, of, of Kirsty. Yeah, Kirsty Young, yeah. He was an incredibly important part of the, the channel um, and, our, and our early success. 
Yeah. And so we, what we did is we gave a whole raft of talent opportunity. And the talent was not just new on-screen talent. It was new production talent. But we also gave what the advertising community wanted as well, which was more minutes um, and um, more advertising minutes. So as, uh, you know, they, to help with the negotiation in part with other channels, but also just to get their messages across to a, to a, to a broader and different audience. And you know, the broadcasting community was always a bit snotty about Channel 5 because, oh, you know, they don't do high-grad programming. No, we did modern, mainstream, youthful programming. We were a very young channel. We were incredibly successful. We, were, we went from naught to six, to just under 6.5% share uh, within four and a half years. The channel was valued at nothing when we launched, and we can tell you what it was valued just before I left because the private equity firm wow. who exited from the business got a valuation which they exited which was a billion pounds so we had built something um that not only was catering for a an audience that really wasn't being catered for uh and it was we were slightly anti-establishment i mean we were once described i think it was by victor lewis the late alas victor lewis smith as we were like alcoholics in a lock-in in odd bins because we used to just sort of, <laughs> how the hell can we do something else that's going to aggravate the daily mail and believe me the late um, Keith Chegwin and Naked Jungle didn't half upset the Daily Mail and, and, a, and a fair few members of the House of the Parliament who said, who said, we didn't award this license to to see people with no clothes on sort of before the watershed. But the reality was, is is that was a show that was a, a, to celebrate <laughs> Naturism Week. And uh, we didn't choose young, beautiful bodies. We chose ordinary bodies. Uh, and God bless Keith for doing that. And although he sort of slightly tried to distance himself from the show, it actually um, reinvented as well, I would suggest. Um, but it was, you know, we, 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 nudity and sex and sexuality, we weren't afraid of dealing with and we weren't afraid of putting adult programming out late night, which we did, which is, let's be very clear, very soft adult programming. But we, we gained a, a reputation not helped by when I was asked by Janine Gibson, who was the media editor of The Guardian, you know, how, how would you describe five? And I said, well, some would describe it as being about football film and the F word because of our adult programming. I said, but it's actually a lot more than that. And it was. I mean, we did run football and we were very smart in our acquisitions of football. And we always had a movie at nine o'clock and we did have adult programming late night. Um, and it was watched and it did 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 help with our audience numbers. But uh, from a PR point of view, um, it, it made us a, a sort of sitting target to have a have a pop at, but we didn't care. So clearly, despite the three F's label, Dawn, the planner, and your team obviously had a plan, and it was very smart and it was very strategic. We were very sophisticated and very thoughtful about what we did. The idea that we were sort of reckless and, like I said, like alcoholics and odd bins, we weren't at all. We were a very successful, very tight-knit commissioning team. Um, and we did something that nobody else has done. Took something from 0 to 6.5% share. We were the most successful broadcaster in the UK, and I think we can still hold claim to that, uh, converting pounds spent on programming to uh, revenue. And, you know, the channel is, is you know, is, I look at it now and it's it's very different to the channel you know, that I launched 25 years ago, but it's in good shape and it's got good owners and it's got a good director of programs and a really good commissioning team. And, it, and it's changed. And, but it was glory days when we were there and we did. A, we launched a lot of careers um, and made uh, a lot of people 
famous, made a lot of production companies. They would never get rich out of Channel 5, but they'd always get a very quick answer. We were very, very responsive. That was another part strategically when you ask about you know, the the um, the stakeholders that we served is mm. we knew that the production companies, you know, needed cash flow and needed quick responses. We knew what our schedule needed. My commissioning editors, I ran a very, as I always have in my approach to, to leadership and management is, look, this is what I need you to do. Those are your slots. This is a sort of, these are the sort of volumes of audiences we need. There's your money. I trust you. Go off and make your decisions. So they could have, conversations with producers and say if an idea came in they they knew with confidence they had a slot how much money that and they could say yes and so we gave very quick quick answers we could never give top dollar because we didn't have top dollar but we gave quick answers and it worked well and it worked well so no it was happy glorious days fantastic uh, you know you, you've already described that you've worked at itv and channel four and channel five what do you think was the most creative environment you've worked in and, and if so, what, what characterised that? Right. Well, that's quite hard because I would say, um, I would say, and I worked at Sky as well, but the most creative, I would say, and they, I would rank them equally, but for different reasons. Channel 4, because it had, it absolutely and still does today, it has a remit to be creative. It had to give different voices. It had to seek the underserved. And it just had to do things differently. That was that was that was enshrined in the remit, and so everybody was very very clear about what it had to do. And first equal, you've got Channel Five. Channel Five was incredibly creative because you had a fraction of anybody else's money. I go back to the point I say you had to be different uh, in terms of your take on the world, and it forced us to be very 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 thoughtful. So, for example, and this is just one example, you know, when Five launched in the in the late 90s and it was you know, new labour was in, the country was on fire. It was rural Britannia. People had good disposable incomes and want and the youth, youth. Well, we all want to look good. Um, but there was then an obsession with gym culture and youth. Uh, and looking, looking, looking physically the best you could be. So rather than do a gym show, uh, we took a view on, on which, okay, let's think about accessible plastic surgery. We did a series called Plastic Fantastic. That was our response to sort of health and fitness. Incredibly successful. There was also an explosion in interest in property. Um, and we, I think, were the precursor for all yeah. those massive property shows that are still very durable. So we did a first season, not first season, we kicked off a series called Hot Property. So looked at, looking at really interesting properties and then getting folks who wanted to buy them to guess what the price might might be. Um, so a different take on property, but still gave you good insight. And it was a sort of slightly entertainment element to it. Um, but we did a lot of groundbreaking features shows. Um, and that and that came out of um, the creativity that comes from when you have a very specific, which we had, view on what our brand should be and very tight budgets. What's it like to get cancelled? Is it an unremittingly sad experience or are there ways in which you can rescue it and perhaps turn it into some kind of positive? There are a number of ways in which you can get cancelled. I mean, obviously, ratings for your first series could be just 
tra- tragically awful, yep. and you could just just like not get the opportunity to make a second one. I- I've heard that happens. It's never happened to me, obviously. But <laughs> <laughs> not. In America, there's uh, been a bit of a kerfuffle with the second series of The Cube, which they have filmed, and it was due to go out already, slated to open on January the 16th, but they still haven't started to put it out yet. So it seems to have disappeared off off the radar in terms of like the PR that they are putting out, saying Series 2 is starting. So there's there's been obviously this uh, big issue in america with things liberally not not getting put out because there's like some sort of weird tax rule that means that if like if if you had not to release a show it then it or a film then it effectively counts as a tax loss which means it reduces your tax bill right. so therefore you more money in your pocket at the end of the year it's sort of completely bizarre well there's a, there's a number of different reasons why i mean you know sometimes it's because a member of your cast misbehaves. Mm. Uh, so obviously Jeremy Clarkson has been running into some trouble recently. Some of its ratings, as you say, I mean, particularly in the States on the networks, the expectations for a show are very, very high. And if something hasn't rated after well enough after four or five episodes or even less sometimes, they will just yank it straight out of prime time without any consideration whatsoever. It's 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 brutal. Also in the States, I think it's often to do with sponsors. Uh, so the sponsor's brand message is incredibly important. And if uh, the show itself or somebody on the show behaves in a particular way that is against the sponsor's brand in some way, then then they will step in and, and exercise a great deal more power than I think they, they do in, in other countries. Though it's, it's certainly the case that um, sponsors also have a, have a voice at the UK. Show I was involved with last year in Canada. There were some bullying allegations on this reality show and the sponsors were not happy about it. Mm. Um, and that's continuing to have repercussions. Of course, also shows get cancelled because you try to make a second series and you just can't. <laughs> I think we may have talked about this before, but where you've got a show which is based around a big reveal and the show goes really well and the broadcaster wants a second series because they've built up a, a, a viewership for it and then it gets really hard to do it again. I had a friend who was series producing a comedy show and there was a lot of interference from the channel, particularly on things like editing the script mm. and the jokes and things like that. And they they went in to make this show. The show went out, but the first show was received so badly, unfortunately, that, that the show got cancelled. Mm. So like they, they had scheduled at least six weeks of this thing that they, they, they'd scouted all of these sort of improvisers and comedians that were taking part in in the show obviously got all these writers all the technical people that was physically making the the program and effectively overnight the calls come in that they're not they're not going to proceed anymore and effectively they were they were all unemployed now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was like they, they just came out of the room shell-shocked um yes well there's a series i mentioned a few episodes ago called survival from above which, if you recall, was a sort of survival show, but set in the rainforest treetops. So all the contestants have to live up in the canopy, yes, essentially, and they can only go down to get supplies or food or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was for Roku, and 
apparently that's been cancelled. Uh, they're in well into production. They've built the whole set. They've, you know, they're all literally ready to start shooting, and it was cancelled. Mm. I don't know why. I've been trying to find out why, and because the show is so well advanced, the production are, you know, desperately looking for another place to pick it up very, very quickly because it's all ready to go. But yeah, that sort of thing must be really quite devastating. I've no, I've never had that. Mm. Well, that's worth exploring, though, isn't it? In terms of like, what what are the the other ways in which you can keep keep your show going? Mm. I mean, there's been a number of very famous ways in which shows have popped up elsewhere. I mean, most recently, I suppose, Eggheads has been very successfully semi poached from the BBC uh, to be used as a Channel Five show. Now that didn't really spend very much time off the no. air. And then there was the issue of. Uh, they had two morning cooking shows on a Saturday and a Sunday. And so what was their Sunday morning show has now become one of Channel 4's longest longest um, brands on, on Sunday brunch. Yeah. I, I think what's been happening recently is that the streamers have been rescuing shows because they've perceived it as a bit of an easy win. You know, here's a show that's built up a good fan base been cancelled for potentially other reasons than just the ratings and they've swept in and given the fans that next season or whatever but because the streamers are now in trouble it seems to be actually heading the other way where streamers are, are the ones that are cancelling shows you know by the dozen <laughs> by the dozen in the last six months to a year i was reading a about a discussion a, a panel with the head of amc studios in the states dan mcdermott was being asked about this sort of recent wave of cancellations of so many shows. This is what he said, as human behavior continues to evolve, our industry is experiencing an unrivaled period of reflection and correction. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, factors include rising inflation, yes, challenging ad market, too many shows, yes, and, I thought this was interesting, an over-reliance on streaming metrics that don't necessarily deliver profitability. Right. So does that mean like they're looking at how many people thumbs up a show? But the thing is that might have fantastic thumbs up ratings or a AI audience appreciation hmm. indexes, as other broadcasters would call it. However, nevertheless, the number of actual people who bothered to finish the series might be quite low. I think it actually means something slightly different, which is that the metrics themselves are used to justify to the advertisers and sponsors their return on investment. But like, you know, we've learnt with clicks on shows and, and YouTube views and whatever, that doesn't necessarily translate into products off taken off a shelf. So I think that's the that's the more fundamental issue is that the metrics are fine, but they just don't ultimately translate into either the sponsors or the makers making money. And as I mentioned before, when you've got streamers whose core business is elsewhere, they need those shows to translate into profitability elsewhere. They need to sell toasters if you're on Amazon Prime Video. You know, they need to sell clothing if you've sponsored all the clothing on on um, on a dating reality oh, show or whatever yeah so i think that's been part of the problem is just the assumption that the metrics on on a streamer are so much more accurate and efficient that this will therefore translate into how the show creates a return on investment and like every other metric in the world <laughs> you know it seems to be having a 
you know, feet of clay. This is assuming that you even get air in the first place, because yeah. you know, there's been a number of shows that have actually been made, but didn't actually get broadcast. So there was Man vs. Beast in 2003 for ITV, which was pitting an- people against animals doing the same task. There was a reality show called Press Gang set on a ship in 2004, which... I- they've actually done a version of that a couple of years ago anyway it was called shipwrecked and mm. then uh, there was my man can which was apparently not a bad idea it was sort of like w- women trying to say like my i think my man can do a certain task and yes i remember that it was a it was a dutch uh, format i think and it, you saying it was it was never made so, no sorry i was saying it was was made it just was they, they just got the tapes back and went we can't broadcast this oh, right. for whatever reason right. Gosh. which is bit strange i think the closest i've come to that was a series i did called wine hunt for channel four a long time ago which was a Mm. wine game show and it was commissioned with great enthusiasm in fact there was a bit of a bidding war for it because the bbc wanted it channel four swooped in and said come and make it with us it'll be it'll it'll have a much nicer time so wrongly as it turned out (laughs) we went (laughs) we went to channel four and we made it for them a lovely commissioning editor and 10 days before we went to shoot it in france he was fired oh and a new commissioning editor who will remain nameless came in and called us in and she said i don't like wine i don't know anybody (laughs) who likes wine i'm not interested in this show but it's too late to cancel it but you should know that I'm going to bury it. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine sitting there? And I was with my boss, and I was, you know, literally ready to reach across the table and strangle. And he was kicking me, you know, because as he rightly knew, we you know when you have bad news in a meeting, you have to immediately start thinking about the next meeting. And this person was going to be our commissioning editor, you know, the next five or ten years. So this wasn't the moment to lose it. But obviously, I was gutted. I put, you know, a year's worth of work into this show in development. So we got out onto the pavement, and I was seething and crying and everything else. And he said, "Look, I know it's it's bad news. Obviously, of course, you must be upset. On the other hand, you have got a four or five week shoot, traveling around the wine regions of France." in june and you have absolutely no pressure on you to deliver anything whatsoever <laughs> yeah exactly it could be absolutely awful exactly. and like the- <laughs> so he said and this was this was his wisdom and i've never forgotten it he was such a wise man he said go and have fun just mm. go and have fun and yeah maybe learn some stuff about you know how to make tv because you know all of this is a learning experience but mostly just go and enjoy yourselves and yeah what great advice so we did we had a riotous time there were i think there were more split ups and divorces from that show than anyone i've ever worked on still but we did we had a terrifically good fun time we came back and channel 4 literally put it out in the afternoons and not even at the same time you know they stripped the episodes across christmas and sometimes we were at like half past 2 and sometimes we were at quarter past 3 and Nobody watched it at all. But anyway, there we go. Lesson learned. Okay, so Dawn, what have you got to show and tell us? <laughs> what? Well, no. Oh, there are so many things I could show and tell you. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think I will 
uh, and I mean, if it helps, I can send you an image but, of this. <laughs> but uh, what I will show and tell you is actually one of my um, uh, favourite shows, um, and one should never have favourites, uh, but it did on Up Five, was Night Fever. It was just, just joyous. Uh, it was great fun. Um, uh, it was just, it was just unadulterated joy on a, on a, on a, on a, on a Saturday night. Um, and it put you in the mood, you know, um, for, for fun and games and you left your house, you watched Night Fever, you had a dance, you had a bop, pretended you could sort of sing even if you couldn't. Um, and, you know, Sugs was an absolutely, uh, brilliant host and we had great guest stars, um, uh, who, uh, great sort of, well, I don't know, was Gary Newmore, Gary Newman, whoever would, would come along and, um, and sing and strut their stuff and, uh, and then we'd listen to, uh, um, stars who actually couldn't sing, uh, trying to sing along. Um, but Pop Monkey gave song choices and Pop Monkey, I won't tell you who Pop Monkey was. He was a male. Um, or they were a male, uh, and they wore a monkey's head. Um, and, uh, that monkey's head was quite heavy, extremely sweaty. You didn't want to be under the studio lights <laughs> in Tennington, uh, where we shot that show as Pop Monkey as he gave out the song choices. But I have pop monkey's head. And <laughs> I, when I put it on, it makes me want to scratch the buggery, uh, because it's a big thing and it's terribly, terribly itchy. And I just think the, the, the poor, the poor ta- actor who had to wear that for, um, a couple of hours, um, got a, a fine, a finer person than me for sure. But it just makes me, whenever I put it on, everybody laughs. Um, <laughs> and it just brings back the most wonderful memory memories of um great um friday nights i mean the show was 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 recorded wasn't live um uh we tried not to do anything live apart from news on fire um and just brings back wonderful happy memories happy memories of a period in time which was uh, the the early 2000s um uh when you know the world was a happy a more optimistic place and england and associated the uk was just buzzing channel five was just we were just doing great things and having an enormous fun doing it. I mean, it was a, the most wonderful team of, of people. And this was a show that was, like I said, just unadulterated joy. And I put on Pop Monkey's hat, Pop Monkey's head, and it sort of takes me back in time a couple of decades to a very, very happy time as uh, director of programs and then ultimately chief executive of Channel, Channel 5. Great. Well, do send us the image. We'd love to see it. I will do. I, what I'll do, because it's actually in Oxford, I will, and I'm going to Oxford tomorrow. I will take a, I'll get my youngest to take a picture of me with, with it both on and underneath my arm. So you can use that if you like as an image. It'll be fun. Brilliant. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Great. And finally, it's time for Fake or Format, our little game where we have two shows to tell you about. One is real and one is fake. And, and this time it is Justin's turn to try and fool me, which he's been doing a lot of recently. So <laughs> I'm going to try my best to reverse that today. Okay. These are two shows that are both to do with bodily fluids. Oh, marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the first one is called Hurl, H-U-R-L, exclamation mm-hmm. mark. And it's a competitive eating series, which you win by vomiting the most. Oh, my God. So this was obviously an American series, and you have a bunch of people, and in each round they're given 
more and more to eat. In some rounds further down the line, they're not only eating, but they're being like made dizzy and things like that by being spun around and so on while they're eating. And the person who wins is the last person to vomit. Okay. So that is Hurl. I don't know whether it's now going to get worse or better. <laughs> it's right. probably slightly better. Okay. okay. So this is a French format called Les Pleurantes, the Weepers, which is also known as the Crying Game. <laughs> Basically, it's a show with four celebrities who are notoriously easy to cry. They, they burst into tears quickly who've been picked up on, you know, from a whole variety of different types of show. And the contestants come on and their job is to make them cry. So we've had a number of shows where comedians, where you're trying to make each other laugh, but this is a show where people come on and they try all sorts of different methods to make them cry, from telling them a, their life story to playing an instrument to whatever it might be. And person who gets the most number of judges to cry in the course of an episode is the episode so that's it you've got uh, the crying game let's call it and hurl which is the fake and which is the format wow they're both very f fleshed out you've been working on these hard i can tell i do remember that there was a, a show on a channel called watch was called Scream If You Want to Go Faster, where the contestants were asked questions while they were on roller coasters. Mm, I remember that. Uh, but I think that there was some sort of like weird like bonus point system or penalty system if you were sick while you were on the roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> there was like sort of like things like a hurl bonus or something <laughs> that was actually part of the format. The crying thing is, is I, can, I can definitely see somewhere like France, which loves a story and loves people chatting mm. endless amounts of time. How, how like the panel of people could just sit there and, and be, get ready to cry. True. But because that, that is the more plausible one, I'm actually going to say that Hurl is the real one. That's interesting. <laughs> interesting logic there. You are correct, actually. Yes. Earl is the actually the real one, tragically. That's unbelievable. I know. So it was on the G4 network in 2008. And as I said, it was a, it was a competitive eating interspersed with extreme activities. So this is a format in which competitive eaters eat as much as they can in the course of the show. And in competitive eating is this area that's, uh... Real, and use an unfortunate word, expansion, uh, because uh, there's there's a guy called Jerry Chestnut, genuine name, who has basically developed new techniques for a lot of these competitive eating things. So, like, he's worked out a way in which you can sort of take a hot dog, sort of bend it into two, and shove it in your mouth, and and this sort of new technique of allowed him to uh, expand the competitive eating record to 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. <laughs> so he's, he's, I think he's like more than doubled the record of the previous holder or something like that. You're going to need some big buckets if he's going to vomit 76 <laughs> hot dogs. It's just something so wrong about it all, really. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, there you go. Well, well done. Well done. You did very well. And that's it for this time. If you want us to chew over anything in the future episode, feel free to contact us on at TV podcast on Twitter or email us via contact at TV show and com. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggy. And this has been TV show and tell. <laughs>